Thank you very much for the, the welcome, and it's good to be with you this evening. It's always good to be back in the Crescent. It was interesting to sing the last song. I was over in Glen Abbey Church this morning, and they were singing the same song. It's great to kind of sing some of these songs of, of praise to God, uh, and what a great uh, song that just was. But let's uh, turn to God's Word together. We're looking at Psalm 40. If you have a Bible there and you want to read along in your own copy, always a great thing to do then please do open your Bible at Psalm 40. And the title that I was given for this evening is Singing a New Song. And you'll see that that is a phrase and an idea that comes from this psalm. It's found in Psalm 40. But it raises a question for for me and for us, I think, which is to ask ourselves what song we are singing. What song do you sing? What song do I sing? Now, I know that amongst us there will be folks who love to sing, and there are some I know who can sing very, very well indeed, and listening to you sitting at the front, I can hear some of the voices being raised as well. But of course, I'm not talking about literally what songs you like to sing when you're in the shower, or when you're uh, driving along in the car, or wherever you might be, but does your life have a song? Does your life have have a lyric, have have words that capture your life experience that describe who you are and is there music in a sense that goes with them you know in a film when you watch the film and it's the music in the background that tells you the mood of the scene Uh, life of course isn't like that sometimes it might be helpful for those of us like me who can struggle to read people's emotions it's kind of the mood music can help you to, to get it but what is the mood music of your life or of my life All of us have a song of our lives. All of us have experiences. Of course, the Psalms are rich as songs in themselves, and they're rich in varied experiences. Experiences of dark times, as well as of times of praise and of elation. And these are the realities of life, aren't they? But this Psalm is going to tell us about a new song that can be our song. And so the challenge for me And for you is, what song will we go into life tomorrow morning singing? What do people think of when they think of us? How do we talk? What's our attitude? What do we bring into the mood of the places where we are? So let's look at Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up. From the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. 
I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. And I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The Lord will bless to us the reading of his word. Now this psalm really falls into six sections, I'm going to suggest to you. And I, and I find a pattern in this psalm, a mirror image pattern, which is quite common, actually, in the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. But it begins and it ends with the ideas of praise and of waiting. At the beginning of the psalm, it opens with the words, I waited patiently for the Lord. And then it goes on to talk about praising Him. And at the end of the psalm, we have praise of God And waiting, you notice that the psalm ends with the cry, how long, O Lord? How long? Don't delay. Come. In other words, the psalmist is waiting at the end of the psalm and he describes having been waiting at the beginning of the psalm. And if you move inwards from that, the second part of the psalm, verses 4 to 5, talk about God's blessings. And the psalmist says that those blessings are too many for me to tell. They're innumerable. They're countless. But at the end of the psalm, he talks about the evils that have encompassed him, which are too many to number. They are countless evils. But in the middle, you have the ideas of an open ear and an open mouth. In verses 6 to 8, you have given me an open ear, the psalmist said. And then he talks about how his mouth has been opened. I couldn't keep my mouth shut. My my mouth couldn't be restrained. I had to speak. So you see this mirror image. And when you see that, it's the center part. In any of those mirror images, the center part is the key idea. And I think what this psalm is therefore teaching us is how do we turn those times of waiting into times of praise? And our experiences through the times of waiting into thanksgiving for God's salvation. So let's work through the psalm bit by bit. Verses 1 to 3, waiting and praise. Well, the psalm opens. Actually, in the Hebrew, it says, waiting, I waited. The NIV and ESV that I read from, I think most English translations put it, I waited patiently. 
Now, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a Bible translator, and it's a risky thing for me to kind of question that translation. But um, I, the, the phrase, I waiting, I waited, doesn't sound to me like patience. I, I don't know about you. It's kind of waiting, I waited. And, I, and I'm not saying that the psalmist was, was waiting impatiently. Because the word that's there twice, this word for waited, includes the idea of expectation. It's not the waiting of irritation, the waiting for something that was promised and hasn't arrived yet. You know, that delivery was supposed to arrive today, and it's not here yet. It's not that. It's the kind of eager, expectant waiting of the child counting down the days on the Advent calendar and the number of sleeps to go until the special date, Christmas or the birthday or whatever it is. So it's that expectant waiting, waiting expectantly. But it is, the phrase waiting I waited gives a sense that it wasn't just a short wait. It wasn't something that was just a momentary kind of hesitation or a little bit of a wait. There was a a prolonged period and David doesn't tell us the details of that. But waiting I waited. I waited for the Lord, he said. And of course, that's one of the realities of life at times, isn't it? The times of waiting. Wondering what's to come. And it's not a comfortable waiting. When it says waiting patiently, look at what David says. He was in a pit, a miry pit. The picture is meant to demonstrate that. A pit Uh, Probably the idea of a cistern, like the one that you might remember uh, Jeremiah found himself in, and at the bottom of it was mud. And when you are sinking into the mud at the bottom of a hole that you can't find a way out of, patience maybe isn't exactly the right word. There is an eagerness to get out. But David looks to the Lord as his salvation, and he says that the Lord saved him and gave him a new song, the song of salvation. The Lord lifted me out. He drew me out. He set my feet on a rock. He gave me a secure footing, a firm place to stand. This is the experience of salvation, of knowing that I was sinking, I was going under. And the Lord stepped in, in his power, and in his grace, and he lifted me out. I hope that's been your experience in life. I hope that you've a testimony to tell of the Lord's salvation. Sometimes we kind of forget that over time, don't we? I don't know about you, but I do. After a certain period of time, you kind of forget what life was like or what life would have been like if you hadn't come to faith in Christ. But the Lord has lifted us and he's given us a secure footing. And this new song is the song that is inspired by the mighty action of God in saving David. Of course, that idea of a new song runs right through the Bible. In Revelation 5, it talks about the song of heaven, that the heavenly creatures are singing in front of the throne of the Lamb. And it says that they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And when you come to faith in Christ, when I come to faith in Christ, we join in in the song of heaven, this amazing song of praise, this new song at the wonderful thing that God has done, specifically through the person of the Lord Jesus, whose blood has ransomed us. 
But David is not just singing the song. He's confident that others will see. They will see what God has done in his life. He doesn't say they will hear the song. David, of course, was a songwriter, and I'm sure he did sing songs as he went around. He certainly wrote songs here in the Psalms and played instruments. But they will see the difference that it's made in in David's life, and they will come to trust in the Lord. Do you remember that feeling that that when when you first came to know the Lord, and you want everybody to know him? You think this is just too good to keep to myself? Well, that's what David's describing. I I want other people to see it and to hear it and to come to salvation in him. So again, I ask myself, what do people see in me? Do they see that in me? Well, David goes on in verses 4 and 5 to talk about the countless blessings of God. He says, blessed is the person who makes the Lord his or her trust. Who doesn't turn to the proud to those who go astray after a lie. It's a really interesting thing. I know this series has been talking about or using the title Resilience. And there's a lot of research that's going on out there about how do people become more resilient. And one of the things that they're researching is gratitude. Now, this might not be rocket science. It might be quite obvious. But there are benefits of gratitude. It's beneficial in your relationships. Surprise, surprise. If you express thankfulness to your husband or wife for the little things, you will, by and large, have a smoother and a happier marriage. (laughs) Now, that might seem obvious, but of course, that's how relationships work, isn't it? It's beneficial in terms of people's resilience. Thankful people, grateful people are more resilient in life. They weather the knocks of life better and they perform better educationally and in terms of their focus in work and so on. And even more, perhaps this might be a little bit surprising, but it has benefits to your health. Thankful people have lower blood pressure on average. They report less pain with the same conditions and they sleep better than people who aren't Now, that's research that's being done in the world, in society more widely, but there's a huge irony in it, isn't there? There's a great irony in a world that is saying you should be more grateful and more thankful. Because the obvious question is, who to? (laughs) To whom? Who should I be giving thanks for? And so the the wisdom that is out there saying you you should be thankful for all of the things that are around you and for having clean water and having... Uh, the sun that shines and rain that falls from the sky, even be thankful for that because it sustains life and so on. But, but who too? But we are here as the people of God knowing that this thankfulness, the reason thankfulness is good for us is because there is someone to give thanks to. And so the psalmist says in verse 4, again, David says, it's not about turning to the proud and those who go astray after a lie. When we talk about gratitude as Christians, we're not talking about the lie of of believing in yourself. Just have a better esteem for yourself, more confidence in yourself. Or the lie of thinking how wonderful and how great you are. Pride in self or in others is not the pathway to gratitude or to thankfulness. But the experience of the salvation of God is. To learn to give thanks to your Creator and your Redeemer. Don't turn to the proud. 
trust in the Lord. And count your blessings. I'm not going to break into the song, but it wasn't ever my favorite either. But it's the idea of sitting down and counting your blessings. Waking up in the morning and taking a moment to stop and say, Lord, I'm thankful for this day. I know there's going to be challenges today. You can go on to that next and pray about that. But Lord, I'm thankful to be alive. I'm thankful that I've woken up going to bed at night. Taking a moment sometimes perhaps for some of us to write it down, make a note, write a journal, just note down the things to be thankful for. Or if you don't need to do that, just go over it in your mind before the Lord as you pray, as you put your head down to say, Lord, thank you for these things. It's a discipline of giving thanks, counting your blessings. I know for some of us that comes more naturally than others dispositionally. Some of us are kind of tiggers, you know, the glass half full people. And then some of us are Eeyores, glass half empty. I've got two children and one of them is in each of those camps. Um, and, and so some of us need to work at it. But there's always these things to give thanks for, above all, for our salvation, but for so much else besides. And then the psalmist, verses 68, talks about having an open ear. And he says that God, he says to God, you do not delight in sacrifice. Now he's not saying that all of those laws in Leviticus uh, and other parts of the Old Testament about sacrifices were a mistake. Somebody got it wrong. He's not undermining that sacrificial system. David himself brought sacrifices and came as the priests offered sacrifices to God in Israel. He's not against sacrifice. But what David has realized is that what God is looking for, what he was always looking for, was not just the animal sacrifices that Israel would bring. But he had watched Saul, the king before him, who had disobeyed God in the way he brought sacrifices, who had stepped over into the role of the priest, into what he ought not to have done, who had not obeyed the commands of God. And as it says in Samuel, as Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. But not only that, David had realized that what God was looking for through those sacrifices, in those sacrifices, was a willing heart. The sacrifice of a heart that was humble before him, dependent on him. And so David describes himself, he says, Behold, I've come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O oh, my God, your law is within my heart. wasn't enough to obey the law outwardly. wasn't enough just to bring the sacrifices or participate in them. But the heart had to be right. The law of God, the truth of God, embedded deep in the inner being. A willing servant. But notice that phrase. David says, it is written about me in the scroll of the book. That has to, I think, refer to the scroll of the Scriptures, the law of God, the words that God had given. So what does David mean if he says that? Well, he may be referring to the fact that back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there were instructions about the kind of king that Israel should have. Written there was the model, the pattern for how David should live as a king. 
But probably more broadly, he's saying, look, this is the standard I want to live by. I want to be obedient to your law. I want to be somebody who worships you with all of my being and who obeys you with all of my life. It's a self-understanding that is shaped by Scripture. And isn't that what we need as well? Isn't what we need in a, in a culture that's telling us you've got to find yourself and discover yourself and figure out who you are and only you can find that out. Nobody else can tell you. David says, I'm not, I'm not going down that route of self-discovery. If I'm going to know who I am, I'm going to find it in your words to me and your words about me, the words of Scripture. But to do that, he needs an open ear. And he says, you have given me an open ear to listen so that the words get inside, not ears that are clogged up with wax that aren't listening, but an ear that is open. And of course, ultimately, you may well be familiar, those verses are quoted in Hebrews chapter 10 of the Lord Jesus. Because David was not the perfect servant of God. And you will not be the perfect servant of God. But the Lord Jesus was. The one who perfectly kept the standard of the law. The one who lived it out fully in every detail. Who never fell short of it. And the one who stepped in himself to rescue you and me from death. That's the Savior that we praise and sing about. Or it's the Savior that we should because David goes on to say he has an open mouth. In verses 9 to 11, I haven't kept my mouth closed. He's joined in in the great assembly, in the great congregation. He comes together with the people of God. And when he's there, what does he do? He sings praises and he tells them about how great God is. His lips are unrestrained, he said. It's an inside-out praise. The Word of God has got deep into his heart because his ear is open. And he says the word is in his heart in verse 8, but it can't stay hidden there. This is not a personal salvation in the sense of, oh, I'm enjoying this and I'm going home and just digging into this and getting a lot out of it. No, when you discover this salvation from the Lord and the joy in it, you've got to share it. Where are you going to share it? Well, David has said he wants lots of people to hear. We've got to share it out there, haven't we? We've got to share it with people. The salvation of God in Christ. But maybe one of the places we can learn to do that is by starting to talk about it here when we're together as God's people in the congregation, in the assembly. Taking part in, in the worship of God's people together, sharing in that context have opportunities to do that, to, to lead in prayer, to share something of what God has done. But, but also in the conversations we have after the service and beforehand, what is it we talk about? Are we talking about God's salvation? Are we inspiring each other in that? And then David says, as for you, O Lord, verse 11, he says, Lord, I haven't concealed your steadfast love your faithfulness, verse 10. And then 11, he says, your steadfast love, your faithfulness will preserve me. Your mercy. Who is God? The merciful one. The one of steadfast love towards us. The faithful one who is new in his faithfulness every single morning. 
The one who we walk through life with. The one who never abandons us as we were singing. But there are countless evils. And I find this psalm amazing how it puts together the countless blessings of God. That song, isn't it? 10,000 reasons more even for my heart to find to give praise to you. But as David then looks around him again, he says, you know, there's, there's still so much that isn't right in the world. Evil's beyond number. And there's, a con- there's a tension there, isn't there? There's a sort of irony. Countless blessings, countless evils, all at the same time in life. Often all in the same day. You've been there, haven't you? You know that. Yes, there are things to be thankful for, but there are things that you struggle to be thankful for, things that you struggle with. For David, he says, Lord, save me from my enemy. Put them to shame, the ones who say, aha, aha, who mock me. Because David knows that as God's king, as God's anointed, when they mock him, they're mocking God as well. So God, would you deliver me from them? Put them to shame. That's not where David begins when he talks about the evils. He says in verse 12, my iniquities have overtaken me. You notice that? The struggle is not just out there between me and those who oppose the gospel or those who might mock me for my faith, those who might despise me for being a Christian. It's hard, isn't it? Sometimes in school, in the workplace, in the family, in the community, it feels like it's hard. But the bigger struggle, perhaps, is also in here, isn't it? Struggle with our own sinfulness. And David is very aware of his own weakness, his own sinfulness, his own ongoing need for forgiveness. The reality of life is it's not always the high. There are the struggles. And so he comes back at the end to praise in the waiting once again, verses 16 and 17. He calls us. He says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. He's calling us to join him in this inside-out praise, this praise that comes from the inside. It starts with seeking God. And then you can rejoice in him. And it starts with loving his salvation. And then you can declare his praises. One of the reasons we struggle to talk about the praises of God in the world. Well, I've said one already, is that we don't talk enough about the praises of God in the church when we're together. But it's also because we don't feel we have anything to say, is it? Because we're not pausing and stopping and focusing and taking time to seek God, to get dedicate ourselves to, to soaking ourselves in His Word, to remembering, to pausing, to slowing down and making that list of those blessings. But when we do, when we seek Him, we find that we rejoice in Him. Seek and you shall find. When we love His salvation, we want to tell people about it. So what do you love? And what are you seeking in life? What am I seeking? What do I love? And who am I anyway? And I love the way David expresses that in verse 17. He says, as for me, you might remember that little phrase earlier in the psalm. Verse 11, as for you, your mercy, your steadfast love, your 
faithfulness. This is who you are, God. For who am I? As for me, what does he say? I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. That's what matters to David. David's not bringing anything into this equation to embellish the greatness of God, to add to that somehow, to stand on a par with him, to deserve just a little bit of the praise, Lord. I mean, you did most of it, but I, you know, I deserve a little bit. No, who am I? Needy, poor, my iniquities have overtaken me. But the Lord, but the Lord, but is so significant. The Lord takes thought for me. That's who you are. That's what gives you significance. That's what makes you someone special. And I can say that whoever you are and whatever your life story is, it's because the Lord's mind is on you. The Lord loves you. And David calls us to join in the praise. He's still waiting at the end of the psalm, and so are you, and so am I. That song in Revelation 5, we've read about it, but we're not going to hear it and join in fully, are we, until we're there, (laughs) or until heaven comes to earth and Christ returns in glory. That's where our story is going. So as we carry on the journey, what song will you sing? What song will I sing? What song will we sing tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever time you first go out and meet someone else? Well, if we're going to sing a different song, we've got to open our ears, don't we? We've got to learn who God is. Listen to his word. And we've got to make sure his truth and his word, his gospel truth, becomes internal to us so that we begin to understand ourselves poor and needy people whom the Lord loves. That's what matters. And then we can open our mouths and we can declare his praises to the people who we meet. And lastly, we keep on going (laughs) because we might wait and then discover the Lord's salvation and then we discover more troubles around us. But we keep on waiting and we keep on praising because God's work in us is not finished yet, but he will finish it one day, and you can rejoice in that truth.